Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Also Sport Podcast. We ask if Toyota can finally beat its Le Mans curse and look back at its near misses. Toyota heads into the Le Mans 24 hours this year, bidding to beat the curse that has condemned the world's biggest motor manufacturer to so many near misses over the past quarter of a century. Can it finally win? They've got the car, they should do, but you could have said that many times before. I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and joining me to explore Toyota's very checkered history at LaSarth and look at some of the other cars and drivers who really should have won there is Damien Smith. Uh, welcome, Damien. Now, last time Autosport Podcast listeners heard from you, was in the, the Schumacher Button and 20 Years of F1 edition, which was supposedly your farewell. But you seem to you seem to be back. Yes, you can't get rid of me, can you? Um, I thought that was the last time. Um, as it turned out, my little foray into the world of education, uh, I went off to become a teacher. That's that's like a proper job. That's really hard. Uh, fairly, fairly brutal way to make a very small living. So um, I really 
took a lot of uh, from my my short teaching experience. But I'm yes, I'm back in the motorsport world, back in the world of journalism. So uh, very pleased to be back involved as well. Thank you for having me. And you start at the bottom end of the chain now. You have to work your way back up again. Yeah, I'm just a lowly sub on on Kevin Turner's pages, which is um, is actually been a real pleasure the last the last few days. So it's been very nice to be back involved with a with a great magazine. Well, mention of Kevin Turner brings us to my second guest. Very well qualified for this discussion, given the amount of time you spend on the history of Le Mans and sports car racing in general. And there's two articles you've written in the past few years. One recent one a few years ago, which we're going to come back to later in the podcast, looking at the, the best drivers and cars never to win Le Mans. List Obsessive and Autosport Magazine Editor Kevin Turner. List Obsessive, Autosport Editor and also Sports Car Fan. Um, As a kid I collected lots of model cars and the vast majority of them were sports cars and actually Le Mans cars. Um, My my dad's moving soon and I've had to go out there and help him pack stuff away and there's, there's a lot. There are a lot of Le Mans cars. And of course, having started small as a youth, you presumably have graduated to an extensive car collection of rare and and valuable machinery. If, if, if I was wealthy enough, I would almost certainly spend a stupid amount of money buying some buying some real cars. But not to drive them myself. I'd give them to proper people to drive. If you could buy one car, money no object, which one would it be? Oh, it'd be a Porsche 97, easy. Yeah, I've only seen one driven properly once. So I'd buy one and, and get someone proper to drive it as many times as I could afford. Who drove it properly then? Uh, Gary Pearson drove it pretty well. He drove Carlos Monteverdi's car. At Silverstone and did a good job. Just have to hope one day you can rival Carlos Monteverdi's wealth. <laughs> mm, don't think I've gone down the right path for that. <laughs> well, you're you're rich in many other ways. That's uh, <laughs> that's the the way we should. Uh, should well, richer now that Damien's back. It's I, been an excellent, yeah, excellent addition to the office. Ah, uh, richer in terms of the personnel resources yeah, not, and not that kind of thing. Actually, yeah. I was going to say, is he? Is it, <laughs> have we bought the pay driver model to, uh, no, to publish? I'm paying Kev to work work on the mag rather than the other way around. <laughs> oh, this is quite a good model. I can uh, I can see yeah. it growing up here. It's kind of the way the world's going, actually. Isn't yeah, it? So, why not? There we go. Well, let's get to the to the matter in hand. There was there was a point to this uh, this whole podcast before we we went off on this uh, tangent. So it's Toyota now. Kev Toyota's got two cars. The number seven car, Mike Conway, Kamui Kobayashi, Jose Maria Lopez. Number eight, Sebastian Buemi, Kazuki Nakajima, and a, a certain sports car rookie called uh, Fernando Alonso. Now, surely they cannot fail against a assortment of privateers that they're up against, even with the history. If it was anyone other than Toyota, you would say, yeah, surely this should be one of the easiest, easiest Le Mans wins, really, um, because they've got a budget advantage, pace advantage, fuel mileage advantage. And they've spent a lot of their pre uh, pre event preparation instead of on on durability and and durability with pace because that's what they felt they needed against Porsche and Audi. Now that they've gone, they know they've really got the pace. They have been practicing all sorts of weird and wonderful things uh, that they can't predict. So running around on three wheels and and fixing pretty much everything they can think of because they know if they can just keep one of the cars mobile and cut its time down in the pits, even if they have an unforeseen problem, they should win. So logic says, yes, Toyota should win this race. And then, of course, you've got the interesting story of will it be the Alonso car or not, uh, which a lot of people will be interested in. But yeah, because it's Toyota, you just you kind of think, is there one more chapter of their How Not to Win Le Mans book, uh, you know, left to right? It's interesting, isn't it, Damien? Because... In recent years, Le Mans has become more and more an all-out sprint race between big manufacturers. But Toyota is in a more old-school scenario now, isn't it? In that it's got the pace advantage, that's clear. It just has to run relatively cleanly with one car, and it's a guaranteed victory. That's right. But it, you know, in the years that I've been going, it's 20-odd years since my first Le Mans, and, and obviously I've been reading about it for, for, for donkey's years uh, before that. Uh, everyone 
who has experience of Le Mans says you have to beat the race first. And that's true of all motor racing, but particularly, it seems, of Le Mans. It's a race that um, no matter where your position, uh, you know, you, you can be as dominant as you, as you like, but something can go wrong so easily at Le Mans and so quickly and everything just disappears. Uh, and I, I experienced it um, myself as a, as a journalist. Um, I think 2007 stands out for me, an, an Audi year when the Capello, Christensen, uh, McNish dream team were were winning comfortably by more than a lap on Sunday morning you know I think it was 12 or 13 laps into a stint Capello lost a wheel and that was game over and um, you know they had that race won but the race beat them and that can happen to Toyota with two cars only two cars two minor problems and uh, it could all fall apart for them. It's probably worth mentioning as well that although obviously Ed you were right to say that it became it became a sprint race Really, I think thanks to, to Audi raising the game, and then when Peugeot came in, it did become a 24-hour sprint race. Bringing in the hybrid technology has kind of taken it a little bit old school in that the cars are so complicated. We have seen the last few years, it's the car that's the least wounded or least delayed at wins. I mean, obviously last year it was the sole remaining hybrid Porsche, which I think had lost half an hour or something early on. Yeah, that didn't even run cleanly, did it? No, so, it didn't yeah. run cleanly, but had the pace, but and everything else fell to bits. It was almost like an old school 1970s sort of more. Um, so I think the hybrid and Sebastian Buemi actually has made the point, you know, their cars, the Toyotas are much more complicated than the privateer cars. So, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but there are more things to go wrong with them, which is why they've been trying to test everything and change everything to see how quickly they are. Apparently, they now have a menu of exactly how long it takes to change each part. Um, so they probably Toyota will probably know that they're going to win or lose before we do. Well, it's the interesting thing, isn't it? You mentioned, Damien, how they're running through all these potential disaster scenarios not quite disaster but problems they might have to encounter and talking about educating the drivers about what you do in that situation and testing them and retesting them so it's an interesting approach they've had to take to put all their focus not into improving the performance overall but just that making sure they can conceive of every problem but of course that's the thing isn't it even if you know the problems there that doesn't necessarily mean you can fix it it doesn't necessarily mean it happens at the right point and that's one of the unique challenges of them on with that long lap you know it's not like a short circuit where you've only got a mile to go you might have you might have eight miles to go to, to get back into the pits yeah absolutely and um uh, gary watkins our, our great sports car writer uh has, has um interviewed pascal vassalon for for the the supplement which i've been i've been subbing for kev this week and um uh, it's a great interview and what the thing that really um impressed me about vassalon is he talks about how much work they're putting into all the different scenarios about what can go wrong and, and doing things that racing teams have never done like you know running a car on three wheels uh, just just to see how the driver manages to get it back to the pits you know working out which buttons to press when it all go, does go wrong um so the drivers are really having to do the homework in a different sort of way um but Vassalon has recognized that this is a sport and in sport random things happen they can't guarantee a victory they can't guarantee anything uh, and there's there's no um there's no sure thing especially at Le Mans the other interesting thing in that interview was that he ruled out running the cars at a slower pace uh, for two reasons. One, the hybrids, if they run too far off their, their their designed pace, they have all sorts of weird and wonderful problems that they'd rather avoid. And the other is, I think that he probably accepts that he's going to have difficulty slowing down the drivers. You know, how do you say to one, you know, basically the, the two sets of drivers know that they've only got to beat the other one. Um, so he's sort of is basically we have to trust them not to do anything stupid but we're not going to tell them not to race because we've been telling them to race the whole time you're not going to then suddenly stop that at the biggest the biggest race of the race of the season um, which I guess leaves the door open for some 
unbelievable calamity in traffic or something um, which could op- could open the door for one of the privateers. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because if you tell drivers to drive in a way that would not be normal, then they won't be driving sort of automatically almost. They'll be sort of thinking about what they're doing, second-guessing what they're doing. It's like, well, normally I'd go under that Porsche into the corner, but can I afford to leave? And then suddenly you get caught in two minds. So it's, I guess, their unique challenge they've got is they've got to focus on all this yet. We've got to get it home. We don't have to race quite so hard. But at the same time, we've got to treat it like a like a normal motor race. Yeah, I think I mean the, the whole Toyota team are, are going to be on edge so, uh, to a, to a degree that is going to be hard to imagine for most of us. I think through through that twenty four hour race, because even if they have a three lap lead over the rest of the field, you know they're going to be waiting for any any sign of a problem, any sign of a moment. The drivers. I think in the pits are probably going to be more nervous nervous than the guy in the car because he's just going to be concentrating on what he's doing. But um, I think that's the tension in in this year's race is this thing about Toyota beating itself in a way, you know. And, and I think um, you know you'd rather have Porsche, Audi, and Toyota going head to head. Of course you would, but I I think it's no, it's still absolutely fascinating. I'm not just saying that to build it up. It, I think genuinely. It's a really interesting scenario we're going into this year. Yeah, I think Le Mans fascinating. Even when you do, obviously you do always want a, you know huge number of works teams and works drivers going at it for the whole twenty four hours. But because of the nature of the event, there's always a storyline or many storylines. And uh, yeah, the Toyota one is an obvious one this this year. And it'll be interesting, you know, uh, if uh, if Alonso's car win is it a, is it an Alonso wins Le Mans? Is it a Toyota wins Le Mans? Uh, headlines for the on the Monday morning that should be quite an interesting one. Well, the good thing is I think whatever happens at Le Mans is going to be a story, isn't it? If Toyota wins. Finally, Toyota's done it, and if it's a, the Alonso car, then it's Alonso's done it as well. So that's another layer to the story. If Toyota doesn't win, that's another chapter to the ridiculous Toyota Le Mans story, and we'll we'll see one of the array of privateer LMP1 cars. Chances are winning one of which contains Jensen Button, or or will it be an LMP1 car? Because obviously, most True. of the, the LMP privateers, well, they're all new cars, aren't they? And uh, we all know new cars. Um, reliability over 24 hours at Le Mans is is a is a tough uh, a tough thing to ask. So, you know, we've had an LMP2 car almost win the race before. Is this going to be the year when when that happens? Well, you've got the the Eureka in particular is a very proven piece of kit in LMP2, isn't it? We saw last year that that indeed they can run through at a good pace for 24 hours. They've got there's a whole host of good drivers in LMP2. Um, so you'd think one car will run quickly enough. Depending on how much, how big a problems the the LMP1 cars have, you I've just got a sneaky suspicion that Rebellion will be able to get one of their cars home without too much drama, just because they're that they've just got that quality about them. They've done it before. They've got great driver lineup, so you think that they're probably in pole position to pick up any sort of pieces that are left by Toyota. But yeah, it's not it's not inconceivable that LMP2 car would be on the podium again. It'll certainly make for an, for an interesting race if it does come down to that because there's all sorts of interesting cars and drivers there and you've even got someone like Juan Pablo Montoya driving for United Autosports who could complete what we consider to be the, the triple crown were he to win outright. It's very unlikely given he is in a P2 car but, but you never know. Obviously on triple crown there is some dispute about whether you should count uh, the World Championship in F1 or the Monaco Grand Prix. What do you count it? Personally the Monaco Grand Prix because I think it's about like for like. Indy 500's a race, Le Mans is a race, yeah. Monaco Grand Prix is a race. Of course, Graham Hill did both versions, and I, he did coin it as the World Championship. But uh, I'm, I'm going to say I, th- I think Graham Hill was incorrect on that, but he still did it because he won Monaco five times anyway. Yeah, he was, he was well covered, wasn't he? But I think I'd probably agree with you, Monaco 
is the Triple Crown, Monaco, Indy and Le Mans. What, what a story that would be if Montoya did pull that, pull that off. I mean, I think it's a bit of a long shot, obviously, in a, in a United All Sports Ligier compared to an Orica, but the Ligiers look like they're going to be quicker this year than they were last year, so um, it's a good driver lineup, and they're, they're a well-honed team that had a very good run last year in the race, so... You know, you, you, that's the thing we just don't know. It'd be typical of Alonso's luck, wouldn't it? If uh, if having made all this noise about, well, if I can't win lots of world championships, I'll go for the triple crown and then Montoya sneaks up and Montoya does it. just pops up and does it. <laughs> and driving for the team that, of course, Alonso drove for at Daytona this year in uh, United Autosports. So, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think whatever happens, it is going to be a, a fascinating race with all manner of storylines. And I think... Um, talking about just that tension there's going to be with Toyota's going around. So, of course, the really famous one recently was in 2016. I think Kazuki Nakajima, Sebastian Buemi, Anthony Davidson, they had the race won, and then an airline connecting the turbo and the intercooler fractured. And this was basically penultimate lap. Um, just this agonising loss. We saw them slowing. You think, no, this can't happen. That was just, I think you were there as well, Damien, mm, weren't you? Yeah. It was just agony to see, yeah. see that happening. You don't normally feel sympathy. Well, up until that point, I always thought the hazes Perea 962 failure with about 15 minutes to go from second place in 1990, which is a privateer Porsche, in between the two works Jaguars, uh, retiring was the most agonising finish to Le Mans and I think they got a lot of sympathy in the paddock but uh, I think it was 3 minutes and 21 seconds on the clock I think when the Porsche overtook the Toyota in 2016 I mean that's just I still can't really believe it now to well, be the thing was it wasn't it would was, be one thing if something if the engine had just blown up and scattered itself all over the Mulsanne straight and the car pulled over then it just happens but it slowed and stopped on the start finish line and then got going and, there's, and in fact they did actually complete the last lap but too slow to be even classified yeah uh, classified second what's the thing about some of these problems that we get with these modern um, hybrids is that these, these uh, engine problems or, or related engine problems uh, the thing just stops and there's no there's no question about nursing it back to the pits or you know, putting in a heroic um, thing you know, where where they you nurse it back in one gear or whatever it's, they they just they just stop and that's the end of it and there's no going there's no going. It's because it's usually something to do with the ancillaries or the hybrid units themselves, isn't it? Or or like with Daniel Card at Monaco Grand Prix, there's a bit that stops working. It's very rarely the internal combustion engine goes bang because that's the reliable known bit of the package normally. Maybe that'll be what happens this time. But yeah, it's usually a bit of a whimper, isn't it? But the drama of being in front of the start finish line as the Porsche came past and basically stopping right in front of the team. I mean, it, Le Mans couldn't surely be any more harsh to Toyota than it has been already. Well, it's always the last lap, isn't there? Yeah, there is. That's true. But that was the most dramatic moment of that kind of a, of a car breaking down uh, in a race that I've ever witnessed. That's for sure. And I think I think surely in history, nothing quite tops that. That's it's something else. No, well, I mean GTE was decided on the last lap last year, but that was with a with a pass, wasn't it, between the Corvette and the Aston Martin? But yeah, to actually have a, a, an overall winner fail on the last lap. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, we, we might get to it perhaps a little bit later, but I think Ken Riles and Denny Holm were robbed pretty much on the last lap in 66, but mm, that wasn't... That was a different sort that of story, was a, wasn't it? Yeah, so that was Ford trying to engineer a dead heat nonsense and it not not working out, and so the car that had done a lot of the leading you know, was robbed, but it's not quite the same as a car yeah. breaking down right at the end. Yeah, particularly when it's your only car as well. At least without, if there was another Toyota in second, it would have been annoying, but not, yeah. quite, so, uh, not quite so painful. But it's just this amazing extra chapter that nobody, nobody thought possible. But, you know, we talk about the Le Mans curse. You know, Damien... Is there such thing as a Le Mans curse? Well, I'm not a superstitious person, uh, and I don't really believe in such things as curses, and I, I don't really believe in in luck as such because um, 
it's to, for me it's too indefinable and it's it's hocus pocus. But having said that, the psychology of going thirty years and having so many close calls, getting so close to it, and not winning. I am fascinated by this this aspect that for that team, for those people involved, there's a barrier to winning Le Mans in their in their minds that they have to overcome, and this is part of the tension that I was I was talking about earlier with this race. I don't really believe in a curse, but I do believe that psychologically, for them to win that race this year, there's an extra achievement beyond a win a win at Le Mans. It's actually overcoming something that's that's built up over so many t- over so many years, um, and that's what's fascinating about it for me. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would begrudge if they begrudge them if they finally, finally get that win. But it must get worse every year that they don't. So it just builds into this incredible story. I mean, when they, I think when they first came back during this era, we were looking back at the Toyota GT one and the, the and the you know the ninety four loss and all that sort of stuff. Um, oh, now they can they do it? But they've added <laughs> they've added so much more to it in the last few years. You think how, how much longer can it go on for? So I think there'll be a. I think that if they do win it probably relief will be the first emotion that they get when the yeah. car crosses the line. My memory of that uh, 2016 failure um, was the camera panning in on Hugh de Shornak in the in the in the pits, you know, of Oreka or- who were, you know, a big part of the Toyota story uh, running the car and, you know, he's a very emotional Frenchman anyway. Uh, Le Mans is his life and to lose it, you know, he he was distraught. He was a broken man in those moments and it was heartbreaking because these are good people and they're they, you know, a real racing team in in every way, every sense of the word, uh, and to to lose it in that way, you just thought, how are they going to come back from this? How are they going to, how are they going to get over this? And, and I, I don't think it's something you, they they have ever got over. I think it's something that will live with all of them individually, um, and that's why again, if they do manage it this year, it will just help them so much <laughs> with with getting on with the rest of their lives. Lamont the therapy, yeah, yeah. You sort of talk about the psychological side, but that does have real manifestations in that as soon as people like we talked about with the drivers driving normally as soon as you kind of take your mind off just doing what you do and all the people who were the side team very professional very qualified very good accomplished people they all know what they're doing but as soon as there's that in the back of their mind like thinking don't mess it up don't mess it up you know whatever they're doing whether it's a pit stop or just some routine work preparing the car or whatever it's just easy for just to get distracted from just doing your job normally and then that's sometimes when things can can go wrong and you know you can't argue when it comes to curses you could say there's something about the tighter culture that's put into the team I mean the team now is very very different to the one that first lost Le Mans back in in 94 when they, when they should have won so yeah. it's not like there's much continuous history there but there's you know when we talk about luck and misfortune and, and curses you can have you can have one-off piece of bad luck that can happen you know if if you're leading and a GT car has a brake failure and just piles into you or something. That's not that's not your fault unless you could have done anything to move out of the way. But you know, when you get a bigger picture, a bigger body of work, sometimes it points to something that's there that might not immediately immediately be obvious, or it just becomes this self fulfilling thing that you have you do have a little bit of misfortune and then errors happen. But because of that, I think Ed, you should run down your briefly run down your list of Toyota's near misses and see what they haven't ticked off yet. Well, yes, yeah. Well, they tend to, they seem to be gradually getting uh, getting closer. Ninety four, Eddie Irvin, Mara Martini, Jeff Krosnoff, gear linkage broke. Ninety minutes from the end of the race. Ninety eight, of course, the Toyota GT one, which is a very fondly remembered car, certainly by uh, I think people of of, uh, of our rough age. Uh, Thierry Boots and Ralph Cullen as Jeff Lees. That was lost. my first Le Mans. That was there. Yeah. We go. We'll, yeah. we'll probably come back to the GT one in a minute because that's a great car. Basically, lost oil. Ninety minutes to go with a with a forty second lead. 
99, the following year, the same car, uh, the GT1, uh, Kiyakatiyama, Toshio Suzuki and Kaichi Tsuchiya, puncture while leading, and they would have very likely won. It was still quite close, but but they, they should have been They were trying to chase down the BMW. But I think before then, no, one of the other cars had had an issue as well that should have been yeah, in yeah, the mix yeah. somewhere I mean, that, well. that car, the, the, the all-Japanese car, was set to come out come out of the pits in its final pit stop with about 15-odd second lead. So uh, they had they had control of it. It was quite close to the BMW. And then we had 2014, uh, Kazuki Nakajima, Alex Wirtz, Stefan Sarazan, sensor loom burned out and left the car stranded on track. It was coming into the pits because they detected the problem. It was a quick fix to sort it out, but just couldn't get the car back. Uh, 2016, we've talked about with Nakajima, Bremi and Davidson losing it in agonising fashion. And of course, last year, Kimoi Kobayashi, Mike Conway, Stefan Sarazan leading comfortably had a clutch failure. And there was this extraordinary reason for it with the um, the confusion in the in the pit lane where Kobayashi mistook uh, an LMP2 driver, Vincent Capillaire, who drove for the very orange um, Algarve Pro Racing team. And of course, that orange overalls was just supposedly giving a general bit of encouragement, which caused some confusion and... And obviously it was all to do with his safety car pit stop, wasn't it? So it was, um, he went and then couldn't go. And that, that apparently played a part in the clutch One failure. of the most bizarre ways to lose Le Mans ever, that, isn't it? Or any race. You couldn't make that up. It's one you of those couldn't things. practice that. That will not have been part of, well, maybe it will have been. Maybe they'll send the car off on in testing with some weird setup that would mimic that. I don't know what that <laughs> do, would be. Do you think they just give someone some orange overalls and say, right, during this test, just, just wander around, wave things. <laughs> Cross the just do some things to see if you randomly can make hand gestures to see how the drivers <laughs> react. And they stuff. We've just discovered that if a marshal waves their left hand at the third corner, the wheel bearing collapses. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, you know you you just couldn't make that one. I mean, last year's one, admittedly, there was still a long way to go. I think it was just after midnight, um, so still relatively early in the race. But but the Toyota Toyota had the pace. But it's just amazing that that just line of disaster you can understand all those things happening but you think somewhere along the way you you win but that's that's Le Mans isn't it you know you compare the record of two of the preeminent Le Mans drivers of the past 20 years Tom Christensen and Alan McNish both outstanding drivers but Tom Christensen's record says he's three times the driver at Le Mans than <laughs> that Alan McNish is when of course he isn't but let's come back to the the GT1 because that is such a, an evocative uh, evocative car Damien I mean that car started three races two Le Mans and the Fuji thousand kilometers didn't win any of them it's just one of those those cursed cars, isn't it? They're just absolutely brilliant and memorable, but just never did what it should have done. Well, yeah, and I mean, it looked fantastic, and it didn't really look like a GT car, did it? It looked like a sports prototype. But I, I remember thinking at the time they should have done more more race mileage, and that was the problem: was that it was it was just a car for Le Mans, and and um, I think history kind of suggests that it's the cars that are most successful among cars are the ones that race in the full championship and actually you know you get a full experience of and the team because i think the 98 race was the team's first race as well you don't really want the car and the team to be absolutely fresh going into i mean le mans all about preparation isn't it and not changing things last minute and to rock up and expect to win but i just i completely agree they should have done more races because that would have made the FIGT championship better as well at the time i mean obviously porsche came in the 911 gt1 McLaren F1 GTR was a genuine road car, okay, a fantastic one, but was genuine. Then the Porsche 911 GT1 kind of moved it on and made it a bit more racing-like. Then Mercedes took the Mickey completely with the CLK, and then Toyota basically arrived with the Group C car, always thought of the GT1 as being a latter-day Group C car, effectively. Yeah. I mean, Gordon Murray's always said that the only regret he's got about 95 is that they didn't drive the race car to the track 
from from Surrey. He, he always <laughs> said cool. that he, you know it, it was a genuine road car that could have been road registered, driven it to Le Mans, won the race, and returned home with it. Um, you you know that was um, you couldn't have done that with the GT1. With I the, think there the was Toyota. one road car built, and yeah. I suspect it's probably in a museum somewhere in Japan right but now. The, the drivers all loved it. You know Martin Brundle always talks about it very fondly, uh, and McNish does as well. It was a really great racing car. Um, but yeah, I think you know what you said is, is is quite right. As a team, they weren't they weren't ready to win Le Mans then. Not a problem that the current Toyota team's got because they've been continually racing in whack for the past few years. They won in Spa a few weeks before, so you know everything should be there for for this for this to happen. I think Gary says this in one of his articles in in the the, the preview, but and I agree with him. I don't think any team's ever been as well prepared as as this this Toyota team in in terms of the amount. Of, of losing they've done in, in, in recent years, the much pain they've gone through, but also the preparation for this year's race. No team could do more or anything, that's for sure. Driver I feel a little bit sorry for, he's been a big part of the Tide story, is Anthony Davidson, who's obviously on the bench now uh, with Alonso coming in. So, you know, that, that's his last big thing to do in motorsport was winning Le Mans. Yeah. And he's been in a position to do it. And, of course, his his car, so to speak, could could do that. He's still there as their reserve driver, so there's always a chance he could he could get back in but you know <laughs> I imagine he'll be sat on the sidelines he'll clearly be delighted if Toyota do win but there'll be part of him just going oh. yeah I completely agree Ed. and if you know you talk about curses and destiny and fate and all these these things that you can't really define and um, Davidson it seems is a man who's not destined to win Le Mans which it just isn't fair in terms of his ability and what you know the, the the amount of he's put into that program and man he's you know amount he's given us as fans to Le Mans uh, you know how much pleasure he's given us over over time and how much commitment he's put into it and that big accident he had that year as well you know he he's a man who deserves to have Le Mans on his CV and it, it looks like it's going to pass him by. It's one of those places that always seems to have had it in for him. So I remember his first outing there uh, when he was still in his sort of F1 days uh, in two thousand three in the Velox Ferrari five hundred and fifty. ProDrive built car and he ended up I remember in, in the night we saw you know you have the CCTV cameras sometimes showing stuff because if they're not doing the, the main feed and he, he went off whatever reason he just saw him getting out of the car and just collapsing in the gravel in the gravel trap it always seems to be a place that's had it in for him and this this, this comes back to the whole thing of Le Mans choosing you and it just feels like Le Mans is saying to Anthony Davidson no you're not allowed to yep. for, for, for whatever reason but yep. he's in good company though there's lots of great drivers well we'll, uh, we'll come on come back on to some of those uh some of those ones later, but I think we'll probably all agree that it, it's time now for this for this curse to be lifted. Really, isn't it? I think everybody would be happy to see Toyota finally finally succeed. Yeah, I think yeah, we're all supposed to be impartial. We are impartial, but I, I have to say, for, I can't help but feel I want them to just to win it, get it out of their system, and then the, it feels like you know they, we could all move on once Toyota have finally uh, finally done it. I'd quite like the Alonso car to win so that he can go and because then, then he'll be that much more committed to go and doing the Indy 500. Only if he's got the he's got the other one in the set, then he's just definitely going to go and do it again. And that was such a great story last year. Um, you know, it's been great for motorsport Alonso going and doing these different things. And um, yeah, I'd like to see that continue. And I think a Le Mans win would would definitely will guarantee that. Yeah, it's great to see these sorts of drivers not necessarily wanting to be able to do it because a lot of Formula One drivers would like to do it. It's just they're on contracts, they're well paid. You know, they're not allowed to go and mess about doing them on. Alonso's in a unique position. He has a unique power over the McLaren team. So I think people tend to assume that drivers don't want to do it. Even when Nico Hulkenberg did it, uh, he had to get permission from Porsche. He had to convince Force India it was fine. And I remember a few people at Force India because he was being a bit wobbly at times. Said, "Well, we want to make, we want to see him make sure he's 100 percent doing what he needs to do with us before we 
before we say that that's okay for him to do it. I think Jensen's an interesting one, Jensen Button doing it this year, because I remember during his Formula 1 career, he was actually quite dismissive of Le Mans and quite dismissive of, of anything outside of his little, own little bubble. He was an archetypal Formula 1 driver, you know, during his, uh, was it 17 odd years or whatever it was he was in Formula 1 for, where nothing else really interested him. Uh, now it's a different story. Now he's he's out of the bubble Um you know he, he's he's keen to have a go and get involved, and it's it's great to see. Um, but you know Alonso, that's why I think we've all been so impressed with Alonso is that he's he's had that awareness of of a, of a world outside of uh, of Formula One and has, has really embraced it, which is which has been great. And he treats it all with the highest level of respect as well. He doesn't just walk in and go right. Well, obviously I'm an F1 driver, so I'm going to you know teach you how it's done. He he, you know, locks on what it is. I mean, at uh, Daytona, he very quickly picked up that the best thing to do would be to focus on Phil Hansen, who's the slowest of the three. Well, if I can help him be quicker, we'll be better overall. You know, it's the, it's basically he's he's able to adapt to whatever scenario he's in to get the best out of it, out of the situation. Um, you know, he took Indy very very seriously, and his spotters said that he had an amazing, you know, sixth sense of where everyone was. He's just able to know what it is he needs to focus on to be to be quick. Then again, he is also, in recent years, the world's most unfortunate racing driver in many ways, isn't he? And he's very well paid for what he does. So you've got the, the most unfortunate racing driver for whom nothing ever goes right, paired with the, with the manufacturer at Le Mans for whom nothing ever goes right. So, you know, it'd be a good double whammy if that car was to win, or either of them, really. I think that's uh, a matter. But like we say, it's going, to be, it's going to be a great story. Whatever. Now, Kev, we talked a little bit about the Toyota GT1. I think that was down in fourth in the, the list of the greatest cars Never to win Le Mans that you've uh, you've compiled. So can you explain yourself? Yes, yeah, so I did this. Uh, this one was actually a couple of years ago. I put this uh, this list together. Although I think it's I don't I don't think I'd change it at this point. Um, yeah. So the three cars ahead of the Toyota, the Mercedes Benz 300 SLR, which was definitely going to win in 55. Sorry, Jaguar fans, but I don't think there's any way that the D-Type was going to catch a Merck driven by uh, driven by Fangio and Moss. I think that was that was a done deal, really. And no, that, that, there's no question that car would have, yeah. would have uh, and they held together in it. It was a reliable car. It was a reliable car. It won. And, and, and whereas the D-Type, which is a legendary fantastic sports car, in fact, it's one of, the, one of the cars that got me interested as a kid going to historic meetings. So Jaguar D-Type, fantastic car. But really, it was built to win Le Mans, whereas the Merck was good everywhere. You know, it, won, it won at Dundrod. It won the Media Media, won the Targa Florio. It, it was, and it was going to win at Le Mans, so it was a much better all-round car, um, really. Um, and so it it ticks one box that the Toyota didn't, which was to go and not only compete elsewhere but win elsewhere. Uh, and also, I think it was probably dominating in a, a bigger fashion than the Toyota was at Le Mans itself. Um, I think it's a bit of an underrated car. Um, the second one, the, the number two on the list, I'll, I'll admit, was a bit of a. A personal, uh, like I think it's just one of the coolest cars ever to have graced them on, which is the one-off 2.9 litre Alfa Romeo 8C Coupe, which I believe, if I correctly, was 11 laps ahead of the field. It was, uh, I think, it took over an hour. Uh, it had a, it had a, had a, a tire blowout, which. They were never quite sure whether it led to the failure later on, but I think it seems likely that it did. Yeah, because um, it was a damaged valve, wasn't it? So yeah. Um, like a, you can uh, see that happening from trying to gather a car up. Yes, and uh, and it was a, um, a, an amazing effort to get the car back, I think. And Raymond Sommer was, had basically broken the French, the French, the army of French cars. It was one, one Italian. It's that kind of David and Goliath thing as well. It's one car against a horde of French, French cars. It outlasted them. It was way ahead. It looks great. Uh, and yeah, so I think it took over an hour for the second place car wrench to overhaul it when it was was broken. So that one's always done it for me. But then, if, if memory serves, I think 
if it had finished officially, it would still be fourth or something. Couple yeah, third or fourth, yeah. A couple yeah. more miles. Than, um, than and also, cars, I think it just looks like a 1950s car that's just been dropped into the 1938 race. Uh, it, it does look extraordinary, doesn't it? It's it's one of those cars which, to, I'd, I'd urge anyone who can't picture it, which might be quite a few people, because it's, it's a slightly obscure one in many ways, despite this uh, this rogue cab. So just have a have a quick look up online and just, just see what it looks like. It's, it's cracking. And Al- Alfa Romeo bought it back. Um, some some years ago and restored it back to I think as close to they they put it in a wind tunnel and did all sorts of crazy things with it when they first got it which was quite cool and, um, and it had a very good drag coefficient for the day and it was kind of ahead of its time really um, but yeah they've got it now so it, they occasionally let it out I think it's been to a good festival speed before and it's just um, yeah it's just a very special car to see um, so I slotted that one in there and then number one was perhaps a sort of a less emotional thing but it's got the numbers is the Mercedes C11 um, which really should have should have won and dominated the latter years of the turbocharged era of Group C. Um, won pretty much everything, won the World Championship. Didn't go to Le Mans in 1990 because there was um, because of the chicanes and Mercedes decided not to go. And that race was won by Jaguar. And I think it's probably likely that the C11 would have beaten Jaguar that year. They did go back the following year and disappeared down the road. Uh and uh, and broke with I think about three hours to go the the leading car, but at one stage they were running one two three, um, and it was a silly little failure I think that that put it out. Um, and I spoke to Jochen Mass about it. And he basically said that car deserved it deserved to win Le Mans. It was that good. Well, a certain Michael Schumacher spent a bit of the, that race in the lead, didn't he? I know they got passed by the the by the Schlesser car, but it was uh, Schumacher, Kreutzpointner, and Wendling. Yeah, it? ironically, that was. Uh, that was the car that did finish, the one driven by the by the juniors. They they had uh, I think Venlinger spun it. I think that uh, they were having they had their hands full with the the old the old veteran car. But Schumacher I think set the fastest lap of the race. Um, they were delayed earlier on, and a little bit like the Porsche last year that came through to win, but obviously with a, a, a more you know more cars that in the same category. They I think they got as high as fifth. Um, but yeah, so that's the that's the race that Mazda then famously won, thereby becoming the only Japanese manufacturer to win Le Mans so far, which of course is what Toyota are going to try and change this year. And of course, you could argue, although you say you wouldn't change the list, the Toyota TS050 hybrid, that's had two defeats now, and it? <laughs> if it doesn't win this year, that'll be a third defeat. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that would have to be a... Yeah, that's that's fair. That would have to be a candidate, I think, yeah, if it, if it doesn't win this year. <laughs> yeah, I was always a fan of the TSO10 as well, um, the, the Atmo Toyota Um which uh, obviously was was always it's kind of secondary to the Peugeot in its time, but um, I, I thought it was was a great Toyota as well. But um, I can see why I didn't make your list. But it, would, it was one that I'm always very fond of as well. Yeah, I think Andy Wallace picked it out as one of the best cars he ever drove as well. Because those, the, although the normally aspirated era of Group C did kind of kill it off, really. Um, the cars for those couple of seasons were unbelievable. I mean, the XGR 14 is one of my, my one, one of the rules to the list was that it did actually have to start at Le Mans. So the XGR 14 for me is one of the great sports cars, and they ran it in practice, uh, but they didn't run it in the race, so it was exempt from my from my list. Although you could argue that it sort of did because the the chassis of the XGR 14 was the the basis of the WSC 95 that Yearst won to Le Mans with. I know it's not the same car, but. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's got a fantastic uh, history. That one, I think it was the car in America that managed to go over and, and not win IMSA, 
uh, reasons we won't go into now, and then was just sitting in the TWR workshop in uh, in the states until poor, you know, it came became part of the Porsche program, which then should have won. This is uh, we'll come to this in a minute, but it should probably have won Le Mans in '95 had Porsche not got upset at the rules change and, and withdrawn the car. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing car stories at Le Mans. I have to say, I've got a bit of a soft spot for really bad cars at Le Mans. That's uh, that's the list I won there. You just like really bad cars. Well, they're fun. The thing is, you don't. You, what was the, what was the F1 car you said you'd like to own? The Eiffel Land. Oh, I like the Eiffel. Someone's, yeah, somebody somebody has got the Eiffel and they restored it very, very, very nicely. That's which is good to see. But yeah, there's just a little bit more character to those those yeah, sorts of cars. Right. And and Le Mans has had more than its fair share of sheds over the years. You don't really get that anymore. Well, you don't at all get that anymore. All of these cars are built and prepared and designed to a very, very high standard. But go back twenty years or more, and there were some remarkable uh, machines turning up. Well, it's not that long ago that LM, well, Damien, Damien will remember that LMP2 was pretty horrific, um, and that basically it was the one car that was left. I was going to say on four wheels, but sometimes it wasn't. It would, so long as it was moving, it would win the class. Whereas you think what LMP2 has become, I think the Porsche helped change that with the RS Spider, and then suddenly that was a top ten overall car. But up until that point, LMP2 was pretty bad. Yeah, it was. And but the le- as you say, the level over the last decade or so, I suppose, it's it's just risen so quickly and so highly. Um, I mean, LMP2. You know, looking through the team by team today. You know, if LMP1 wasn't there, you'd have a fantastic motor race because we wouldn't know which car was going to win at all. There would be no, the, you know, the, the form guide is full of potential, essentially. We might have to do a spin-off podcast of what, what should the top category at Le Mans be because we've had this conversation before as well. Well, moving away from cars, we've also got the uh, the question of the best drivers never to win Le Mans. This is the more recent feature you've uh, you've done. Now, Damien, Kev's got Moss number one in his list of best drivers never to win. Now, do you agree with that? Um, I think Kev's list is, is excellent, and he can he can talk through more 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 detail. Sounds like there's an enormous um, butt coming. There is an enormous butt coming. I mean, I'm, I'm Moss for me is he's the ultimate racing driver, and and, he, um, and in most lists, he's hard to argue with being in at least the top three. I'd say with this one, I would I would respectfully argue that he shouldn't be number one in terms of the best drivers never to win. Le Mans, it's the phrasing of it, really. I think you're in the process of arguing yourself round, to my view. (laughs) Okay, in terms of best drivers, you can't you can't really argue with Moss. But in terms of most deserving drivers, never to win Le Mans, I think there's a different different story. Well, well, this this list, I think you did say, Kev, that it's relate. It has to be partly related to their Le Mans achievement, should we say? Because otherwise, you could just say, "Well, here's a driver who never raced at Le Mans but was mega." But yeah, it's it's, 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 it's about a blend of the two. How they got on at Le Mans, why they lost, and what they did elsewhere in sports cars. Well, I I think for me, you've got Bob Wallock at number two, and for me, he'd be number one. And the reason why he'd be number one was the longevity of his career. 30 Le Mans starts. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, he went through so many eras, so many cars, so many opportunities that slipped away, um, mo- most often through no fault of his own. Um, I know there were occasions when it, it was his fault, but, uh, you know, and he was, for, for generations of fans, he was Mr. Le Mans in many ways, you know, through, because he was, he was a perennial uh, entry you know, and and uh, um, it meant so much to him and the fact he didn't ever quite get there um, it became you know um, actually in a way it's it, it's good that he didn't win it because that's the thing that's the thing he's remembered for is you know this great driver who who, who didn't who didn't win Le Mans uh, and Moss never loved Le Mans never liked it 
he he did it because he had to and because it it paid well you know and he would he would jump from manufacturer to manufacturer through the years in terms of who would who would you know who would pay him the most they wanted moss in the car because it was it was sterling moss uh he was clearly the fastest driver he could be the hare so often and break the opposition um and he contributed to so many le mans wins but never got there as a driver himself but he didn't he didn't he didn't like it he didn't care about it and for me that means he shouldn't be at the top of the list i think if you're talking about a, the, the great story of not winning le mans bob wallach is closer to the driver equivalent of toyota definitely so and i did i to be honest i did consider making moss exempt from the list partly for the reasons you're saying but i thought if i'm genuinely sticking to Greatest sports car driver never to win Le Mans. For me, you can make a case for Sterling being the greatest sports car driver of all time. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I wouldn't disagree, and I think he should be in your list, Kev. I just don't think he should should be number one. That's that's <laughs> the that's the only diff, the only thing I'd argue with really. One of the things I quite like about this list is that one of the right the Le Mans Bob Wallach should have won. They didn't because of number three in the list, Mario Andretti in '95. Yes, yeah, in the Courage. So '95, uh, McLaren probably should have been beaten by the Courage. Um, but Mario uh, made a wrong call, I think, in traffic fairly early on in the race, I think, um, and went off and damaged the car. And they lost, I think, five laps and they lost by one lap. So um, I think he's uh, one of our one of our sp- other sports car gurus. James Newbold actually spoke to Mario about this recently because he had he had a couple of chances to win. That was probably the best one. Um and he said that he, you know, the drive back through the field, he was sort of really proud of, and he thought the guys did a good job, and he played his part in that. And well, I've won the class, so surely I kind of count as a Le Mans winner, which I think probably deep down, Mario, who I'm a huge fan of, but I think I'm sure he knows that that's not that's not really what we mean. <laughs> I'm sure we prefer an outright victory. Uh, but yeah, so Bob Wallet was sharing the car, and I think Eric Hellery was the was the third driver in that in that yeah. lineup. Think about Mario. I mean, you know, he almost won in '67, could have won in '67 in the in the GT or the, the Mark. For um, Ford, um, and his era spans that race, which a lot of people say was the greatest Le Mans grid in terms of talent um, and um, variety of talent on the grid. And he was still nearly winning it in '95, all those years later. Well, the amazing thing is his last Le Mans appearance was in 2000 in the uh, in the panels, yeah, Roadster, which is a car I love. The, yeah, uh, the front engine car. He, he was he was. Uh, well past his best then, should yeah, we say. Yeah, but he was desperate to win it, wasn't it? It meant so much to him. And that's another thing about you know, the Wallach thing. It's just you, you love these guys who the race really, it means so much to them that they, they, they will do almost anything and get themselves in any, any position they can to win it. I think if you're thinking of drivers and their bad luck stories with an event or a race, you think probably Clark, Monaco Grand Prix, Mario, well, the Andretti family, at the Indy 500, although he did win it once, a ridiculous number of times he didn't win, and you probably would then say Bob Wallach at, at, at Le Mans. Um, the Andretti family thing is kind of because Michael's success as a team owner in the last few years, that's kind of for me that that curse is is less of a. Not until Marco wins it. Oh um, right, okay. I think it's, it's got to uh, be a driver. It's not the same when it's a team owner, isn't it? I'm sure. It's a yeah. I think Marco's got to win it. It says everything you want to know about the Indy 500 and the Andrettis that the um, Michael Andretti's last appearance there, it was uh, it was Michael versus Marco versus Sam Hornish, wasn't it? Mm. And 
they all went to the line. Of course, it was all an issue. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. won with, uh, with oh, Michael and Marco. Yeah, Michael Andretti, that's a driver. Again, he should have won in Indy, and, and it would have been fair uh, if he'd had a couple of, 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 of Indy wins under his belt compared to some of the people who have won it. And But this is the, th- the great thing about sport, isn't it? You know, you, you get these, these, these massive names in, in other spheres of sport, and they didn't quite win the ultimate. One of the interesting things about Wallach as well because um, we spoke to Adam Manish about him and he said the thing, one of the things about Bob that was really, really impressed him was his ability to maintain pace while saving fuel in the car. And he said, which makes it even more ridiculous and remarkable that he didn't win them on because in those days you actually needed to probably look after the equipment more than you, well, more than you have done in more recent years. Um, so, and obviously he won everywhere else. He said, there can't, there, I can't think of a reason about his own driving why he didn't didn't win them on. He said the other thing was when he obviously when he was partnered with him at Porsche, yeah, Adam was a young guy coming through single seaters, you know, starting off in sports cars. He said through the fast corners, obviously he was, you know, quicker than this this old this old French bloke. He said, but through the slow corners he could not be quicker. He couldn't work out and he'd sort of say to Bob, Well, yeah, what what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, I don't, don't know, you know. <laughs> he'd never got a satisfaction. He looked at the data and he said, In the end I just gave up and just decided I was gonna have to hang on to the Hang on through the fast stuff to make up the time. He said, wherever we went, Bob was always quicker through the slow corners. Um, but so yeah, he had he had all the yeah I think he had all the weaponry except for except for this luck that we we talk about. But I think he did a couple of times. Probably was involved in his own downfall. I think ninety seven. I think he binned the car while they were in the lead. Uh, whereas whereas going back to, to Sterling at number one, I don't think there's a, a, a Le Mans race that was lost because of him. Um, yeah, in the C type, he had a they had a problem early on. Fought back to finish second, finish second, very close second in DB3S Aston Martin 56, which was no way a Le Mans winning car. Miles ahead with Fangio in the Merc, broke the Ferraris when he was driving with Aston Martin in 59, so they could finish one two. I find it very difficult to fault him at Le Mans, and even more impossible to fault him anywhere else. Ford nil, never in thousand kilometres. Yeah, he's the I think he's the sports car guy for me. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, Kev. I think I mean he was. I think in sports cars, I mean, in Formula One, um, for me, Moss was was the driver of the 50s, but even more so, more emphatically in sports car racing. Well, with the Formula One thing, you always have that Fangio yeah. situation, don't you? And Ascari. You? Um, yeah. yeah, although they kind of didn't overlap as much as they should have done. That would have been fantastic, actually, yeah. if, they'd, uh, if they'd had that. But but there is no doubt that Sterling was quicker than Fangio in a sports car. I think even Fangio said, I don't really like having the wheels enclosed, and Sterling always thought that was a bit strange. What are you looking down there for? You should be looking up at the next apex or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah he was, uh, I think if you were to list the greatest sports car drives, I think you'd be struggling to keep probably two or three of Mossy's drives out straight away. So that's that's basically why why I put him number one. But that's certainly not a criticism of uh, of, uh, of Wallach or Andretti, really. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Whenever these debates come up, people think it becomes an argument between, well, Sterling Moss was brilliant and Bob Wallach and everyone else were awful. But it's <laughs> it's never like that. The, the reason these debates are interesting is not you can never get a, an objective answer, but by discussing it, you, you get a deeper understanding of what these drivers did, how they did things, how they achieved their success. And it's just it's just an area of, of, of unending interest for what might be termed pub chatter. Yeah, absolutely. And and I was fortunate enough to be able to um, speak to both Vic Elford and Brian Redman about this as well, because they both got onto my list. Um, but they Sixth actually, and fourth, respectively. Yes. Yeah, so they um, they had quite different approaches as well. So Vic always had the attitude of, what is the fastest bit of kit? I'll have it and we'll get on with it. So he elected to use the long tail car in 1970. Um, and he'd, they, him and uh, Richard Atwood got very close to winning it the year before in the in the more wild 
uh, long tail car by trying to baby it to the finish um which I, I like that approach i kind of like the yeah give me the biggest hairiest fastest thing you can and i'll just because his argument was always um well it was difficult around the corners but i can just pass you down the straight because it was 20 20 miles an hour fast down the mile sound so why do i have to work so hard in the corners and he probably did deserve to win it as well it wasn't like he you know crashed it or anything um and brian redmond who's uh such a, i think an underrated talent i think you've probably met him a few times damien i think he's a, a lovely bloke and a fantastic driver three-time four and five thousand champion and he's driven some with some of the best co-drivers uh and he he was asked if he wanted to be uh basically number one in his own car or number two to Siffert. and he said i'll be i'll be number two to to joe because even though i won't get the plaudits and not as much running i think we've got the best chance to win and it was very effective in 69 they won half the races in the championship they then went for what they thought was the safe option with the 908 um, long tail car, the open car, against the 917s. I thought the 917s will break, but because they had special bodywork, which which caused overheating problems, and they actually retired as well. Um, and then him and Jackie Hicks were in the mix in 73 when the engine went popping the Ferrari, so he was very unfortunate to miss out. I think this is where career stats, um, I, I'm, I'm, I lose interest in them a bit. It's a bit like you know, Sterling Moss not winning the Formula 1 World Championship doesn't diminish Sterling Moss for me. It diminishes the World Championships. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with winning you know, multiple Le Mans. The fact that neither Elford or Redmond have that on their CV, that they, they didn't win Le Mans, uh, doesn't diminish them. Uh, it's it actually diminishes the the importance of having a Le Mans win on your CV. This is why Anthony Davison, if he ever listens to this, which I don't know if he would, but it, you know he should uh, take solace from the fact that um, it doesn't define you as a driver. I don't think. Uh, in some ways, it does because we talk about Tom Christensen having nine wins and Derek Bell having five, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it, it shouldn't do in in terms of um, why these guys matter. Well, ultimately, the, the record books many lesser drivers have, have been able to win it so it you can t- tell a certain amount from from the the raw success but it is meaningless without the context and the and the understanding you know <laughs> these six drivers we talked about joseph it's fifth in the list i don't know we mentioned him moss wallach andretti redmond siffert and elford well john winter so called has got one more lemon win than all of them combined <laughs> which uh, says a lot I- and, and just in case Anthony does see the list, the reason he's not on it is because I've excluded him as an active driver. So the basis that there's hopefully he'll still get a chance, although obviously it's, I guess it's diminishing now, but um, well, you never know. Well, interestingly, if you were to extend that list down, probably the, the driver in this year's race who would merit being the highest up that list is probably Kazuki Nakajima, who's very strong. LMP1 driver. He's been very, very good for Toyota. And I think those who kind of associate him with his F1 performances in his two seasons plus one race with Williams would perhaps underestimate how good he's been. But he, in 2014 and 2016, he was in the car that that was was set to win before yeah. four, four problems struck. And he could well have another shot at either winning or, or adding a third one he should have won this year. You could add Buemi really as well for similar sorts of reasons as being, you know, he's been kind of the point man, hasn't he, a lot of the time for yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, for Toyota. He's just, uh, he's only once, but he was once in the sort of yes. the, the, the make-up. But Buemi's been fantastic in terms of his uh, his P1 performance. So what you're saying Toyota. is that if the number eight car, Buemi Nakajima Alonso, when we get our we get our Alonso headline and we get two people I don't have to consider when I do this list again in the future. Yes. Excellent. Okay, yes, that sounds exactly. like a plan. That makes, that makes life easier. Well, it won't be long before we, we find out whether Toyota can lift its Le Mans curse or whether we'll be back again this time next year to talk about exactly the same thing and a, and a seventh a seventh near miss. But uh, good luck to, to all at Toyota. And uh, yeah, like I say, we're not 
cheering them on as such, but I don't think anybody could begrudge Toyota finally getting that. And all credit to them for continuing in the World Endurance Championship to try and win Le Mans when they could easily have just run off and said, well, Porsche and Audi have gone, so what's the, what's the point of this carrying on? Yeah, and I, I hope that if they do win, um, they're not remembered as, yeah, but who do they beat? No, people don't remember that, though, do they? I hope No, that's, that's true, you know, generally. We talk about all the record Porsche victories, but how many times do people remember what the opposition was like? There were some years where it was strong, some years when it wasn't. Oh, yeah, if you look and uh, look back and see some of the winning margins, they're absolutely humongous. But, yeah, nobody yeah, nobody cares. I, I think, think People might in the moment, but yeah. in the, when it comes to the bigger picture, I don't think. But also, I think that's a little bit offset by this ridiculous history. You almost think it's at the point where if there were just two Toyotas running around on their own at Le Mans... Will they get to the end of the twenty four hours? Is that kind of thing? So to break that, I think would be yeah, that would be would be kind of cool. Well, you'll be able to follow all the news and coverage of Toyota's attempt to at last win the Le Mans twenty four hours on autosport.com and also in our plus subscriber section of all sorts of in depth in depth coverage and, and features from our expert writers. Autosport magazine out every Thursday will have huge amounts of coverage on Le Mans both ahead of and after the race. And also check out sister titles F one Racing and Motorsport.com. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sports Social Podcast Network. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. 
a great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.